Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College, covering the intersection of strategy, security, and warfare. Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors. I'm your host, Jim Lacey, the professor of strategic studies at the Marine Corps War College. Today we are discussing German leadership during World War II, and particularly in the run-up to Operation Overlord and its supporting campaigns. My guest today is Robert Tino. He is the Samuel Zamari Stone Senior Historian at the National World War II Museum. His many books include the multi-award winning The Wehrmacht Retreats, Fighting a Lost War, 1943, Death of the Wehrmacht, The German Campaigns of 1942, and The German Way of War from the Thirty Years' War to the Third Reich, all published by Kansas University Press. Dr. Satino, thank you for coming on the show, and I welcome you. Great to, great to be here, Jim. The, uh, the pronunciation of Wehrmacht, I was sweating it out. You gave it that Brooklyn flair. I was very, very impressed. Thank you. It's good to be here. All right. So I doubt uh, my, my introduction did you any justice. Is there any things you want the audience to know about your work or particularly any upcoming projects, things that uh, force people to get on Amazon today and start pre-ordering? Well, sure. Um, I'll just say one thing. Uh, I was a university professor until 2016 when I left academe for the world of public history. You mentioned I'm the Samuels and Murray Stone Senior Historian at the National World War II Museum. I'm the executive director at the Institute's uh, Research Institute, the um, the, the uh, Institute for the Study of War and Democracy. I live in New Orleans, and I'm a full-time museum employee now. Um, the, the big thing we're doing in the museum is uh, we're designing our last big pavilion, our last big multi-gallery display on liberation, which will be a, a look at the legacies of World War II uh, in the immediate post-war world and up to the present day. Uh, I'm also working on a new uh, a book right now, which is going to try to uh, uh, I guess kind of bring together some of the themes I've been studying and writing about now for for many, many years about the German officer corps, about Hitler's generals. Uh, obviously, there'll be some familiar faces in there, the Guderians and the Rommels and the Rundstedts, but maybe some less familiar faces. Uh, how about these? The the Rendeliches, the the Modals, the Schurners, some people that maybe Western readers haven't haven't heard too much or read too much about. So I'm excited about that. But I got that I got that writing and a gig and scholarship, and and I'm also now full time at the museum. So, in other words, not much going on. A little bit. <laughs> Trying to keep busy. Uh, you, that's do, all. Do, you do keep busy. Uh, hate to be a blank piece of paper in your house. It's life expectancy can't be very long. Uh, so, let's just jump right in. One of the great things about your books, dealing with the operations of the German army, is that each volume addresses the war as a whole. With that in mind, do you have any reflections on how what was going on in the other theaters made the success of Normandy possible? Well, I... Uh, Absolutely, uh, I'd call that question. You know, that that's along the line of the no-brainers. You're you're not fighting a you're not fighting a two-front war. You're fighting on you know a war on all front, and as the Germans said by now, that is a war on multiple or even all fronts. So, uh, uh, Allied troops land in the five landing uh, sectors in Normandy, but at, at that time, you, as the Germans, you have two complete field armies tied up in a hopeless. Uh, strategic defense of the Italian peninsula, but more than that, you have 75 to 80 percent of your army tied up in a vast campaign in the Soviet Union. You know, we, we give a lot of thought to, you know, how the Germans should have placed their 10 panzer divisions in Normandy, but the, the real question to ask is, where are the other 20? And, and here's where they are. They're in the Soviet Union, uh, trapped in the greatest land campaign of all time in Germany, very much on the strategic defensive, and I might even label it a hopeless strategic defensive by this point. 
But the Soviets are about to land their biggest blow of the war in June of 1944. It's Operation Bagration. Our, uh, my, you know, my American friends call it Bagration. Call it whatever you want. We all know what we're talking about. The great Bielorussian offensive of June 1944. It's, it's a few weeks after D-Day. But for strategic purposes, it's it's happening simultaneously. And, and that's where the Germans are being chewed up. And that's why they only have 60 or so divisions in the West. And that's why a big chunk of those divisions in the West are static divisions. That is, they have no transport at all. They've been designed to fight badly and die in place, which is exactly what they do. So we could, I could wax on about you know, how, how many troops the Germans have decided to devote to Italy, but, but let's, let's start with the Soviet Union. Uh, there, that's where the army that, sh- that could be defending France is deployed, fighting, and dying. You know, just one more word about Italy. Um, that's a campaign. If, if the Germans had taken more care of strategic relationships with their one ally on the continent, and that is Italy, they might not have had to be fighting that campaign at all. But uh, they they got to a situation where the Italians wanted nothing more than to get out. They got out. The Germans invaded. Uh, I should say, occupied Italy. Uh, disarmed most of the Italian army. That's all good. And we say, oh, Operation Axis. It was so efficient. What it meant is the Germans were now tasked with the defense of Italy. It take you know you you can't even say that it was that it was a success as a strategic defense. They took more casualties than the Allies did. They, they sacrificed four hundred fifty thousand, maybe five hundred thousand men. And again, those troops could have been better used elsewhere. There's also you know uh, there's an army of occupation in Norway that's topping out at two hundred and fifty thousand men, and it'll be there till the end of the war. And if you know, anyone out there has any thoughts on why the Germans are doing that, feel free to email me at the National World War II Museum and share your wisdom. That was pretty thorough. Thanks. So, but I want to come back to the, something you actually said there because I get it all the time. Anytime we talk, well, not we, anytime I personally talk to someone about the operations around Normandy, this question comes up and you addressed it with the 10 Panzer Divisions. Should those Panzer Divisions have been close to the invasion beaches as Rommel wanted? or held back for a massive counter-strike as Rundstedt wanted? Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. No, there's no okay. Um, from there. <laughs> so this is, yeah, everyone asks me this too, and you know, I've been teaching this stuff for decades and writing books on it for decades, and it's probably the, the operational question. You know, it's in the top five of the ones I get asked most often. Why did Hitler halt the Panzers outside of Dunkirk? Why did he attack the Soviet Union? Why did, why, why did he not let Rommel have his way? But the, the, the answer to all those questions, the answer to the, the Rommel question is, is a very complex one. There were a limited number of divisions to defend France. French coastline, if you count it all, all the nooks and crannies. And, you know, it's 1,500 to 2,000 miles long. You have a small number of divisions. Many of them are static. They're deployed in a kind of thin crust along the, along the coast. The, the real defense of France is not in the hands of those divisions because that crust will be punctured. The real defense of France is in the hands of your 10 first-class panzer divisions. And a lot of thought had to be given to how to use them. And like all thorny operational questions affecting the Wehrmacht in World War II, this one was the subject of a big internal debate that Hitler will eventually have to adjudicate. If, if I could sort of break it down, there's Rundstedt, who is the joint commander, OB Vest, OB, the uh, uh, high commander of the West, uh, he's he's joint, but he's essentially an army command because there's almost no navy and no air force left. So what he wants to do is the uh, the orthodox position of of tank warfare for the Germans, which is to array your Panzer divisions, concentrate them in some central location, uh, and then when the thrust of the Allied uh, movement maneuver landing has been determined, to launch a concentrated counterstrike. Rommel is an army group commander in the north of France, and he says, "No, you don't understand. 
Once the Allies land, it's it's hopeless. Once their air forces are in operation, you're not going to be moving anywhere. And if you think you're going to, you know, roll boldly to some kind of counterstrike, you're you you'll have to do it at night. You won't be able to move by day at all. Rommel is speaking from experience of fighting the Allies and fighting under Allied uh, air superiority. Um, so that's the big debate. The other people are others are weighing in. Various corps and army commanders uh, uh, support Rundstedt. There's also another army group commander in the south of France, Blaskovitz. He he wants some Panzer divisions too. They're the current of currency of military power. So it's thorny. And like all these thorny operational debates, Hitler's going to have to insert himself at some point. Remember, it's not just Hitler. Hitler has his own staff. Okay, the OKW, o Yodel, and that and and that crew who's you know. Uh, advising him on these operational questions. So, you know, eventually what he decides to do is to separate, is to split the Panzer divisions up. Uh, Rommel gets three, and Blaskovitz gets three, and the other four go into a central Panzer reserve, Panzergruppe Vest. And it will be kind of that, or that's orthodoxy, that's for Rundstedt. And then Rommel gets some around the uh, 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 coast, and Blaskovitz gets some to balance Rommel as the two army group commanders. So, you know, no one's – you can tell, Jim, that it's a, it's a compromise because everyone hates it, right? And everyone – and they've continued to hate it ever since. But look, Rommel is not – Rommel doesn't have some magic solution. You place those panzer divisions along the coast and you misjudge the position of the Allied landing, you're going to have a very difficult series of lateral movements under, within range of Allied naval fire that I'm not sure any panzer commander would, would relish. So you guess wrong and your panzer divisions are outflanked. The best divisions in your OB are outflanked from – uh, from from the first moments of the landing. So under Rundstedt, you can't get there. Under Rommel, you might get strong and be misplaced. But there's no magic solution. They're fighting a global war with inadequate resources. They're forced into all kinds of bad compromises like this one. So I think it's a little... We Look, Rundstedt's old. No one identifies with him. Hitler's a psychotic. No one likes Hitler. Rommel, young and you know photogenic and later telegenic. They've made movies about him. I understand the Rommel mystique. But, you know, the Rommel mystique shouldn't blind us to, you know, that's, that's a very difficult operational question that can't be given a simplistic answer. Uh, how about all 30 panzer divisions? But, you know, you can't do that because you got the Soviets breathing down your neck in the east. I like that. I like the uh, thing. No one ever discusses that part of it where they say, um, yeah, they should put them on the beaches. And you go, what, what beach? You know, if they put five of them on Calais, they're all dead. Um, Which is almost certainly where they would have been put even by Rommel. <laughs> That's right. They would have been put in the pot of Calais, and then, uh, you know, probably one in Brittany for appearances, and then <laughs> the others in some sector of Normandy. But I just want to say the the Germans did have a Panzer division launch a counterattack on D-Day, and it fought its way to the sea, and then then didn't know what to do, and then kind of retreated. So uh, obviously, it's not good to be under Panzer attack. But th there's a myth, there's a certain mythology about what that Panzer attack would actually have looked like. The Allies had strategic dominance; it could land wherever they wanted. And the truth of the matter is, when you put certain percentage of your GDP into a long, long fortress wall along the coast, and uh, it gets penetrated everywhere. The investment and all the other places is wasted. Hey, you want to want to defend a piece of terrain, build an army. I mean, you know, I, I think since the Great Wall, I think we should all be pretty aware that a wall, a fortification, fortified lines are only as powerful as the troops that are there to man them. And, you know, look, you can visit those huge bunkers on Omaha Beach. I guess you all are going to in a few days, aren't you? You know, Widerstand, the Widerstand's nest in, and was it VN sixty two is the is the big one. Just remember, there were no you know there were no guns in it at the time. There were a couple of machine guns, but the Germans were having to man all these things with captured French artillery and kind of the flotsam and jetsam of what they picked up in their earlier campaign. So even again, there's Atlantic Wall, Festung Europa, Fortress Europe. So there's a lot more mythology than reality in all those terms. All right, so. Uh 
just for general purposes, when we get away from Normandy just for a bit, we may come back to it, depending on where the conversation goes. But I always uh, enjoy a little talk on the Ardennes Offensive, and I enjoyed all the movies ever made about it and all the books. So, was the Ardennes Offensive, or most people know it as a battle or a bulge, was it a mistake, or was there a path to victory? Oh, that's a good one. Was it a mistake? No. Was there a path to victory? No. I guess I see I, I see the the big thing about the, the Ardennes Offensive. Germans called it Operation Wacht am Rhein, Operation Watch on the Rhine, their marching song from World War One. I. I see it as inevitable. Look, if you've read any Prussian-German military history dating back to Frederick the Great, one thing you could be pretty certain of is before the German army went down in World War II, there were going to be as many offensives, counteroffensives as they could possibly launch. So maybe the Germans had enough for one. And maybe they could have, could have more profitably used this one in the East, some big offensive against the Soviets. But they decided in the West. It's a smaller theater. Uh, there were bigger strategic gains to be made in the East. You know, you'd pick up, I don't know, what would you do? Reconquer Kharkov for the sixth time or whatever it had been in the war. That war would go on. But a bloody nose against the Americans, a penetration, even a even a, a, a sort of small solution, which would be to to surround encircle American forces around Aachen, or the bigger solution, some kind of drive on on Antwerp, uh, it it offered the possibility for bigger gains than an offensive in the east. Now, the way you phrase it, Jim, you know, was the Ardennes offensive a mistake? I, I think the Ardennes offensive had a very, very small chance of success. Even the small solution around Aachen or the big solution around Antwerp. Uh, was it Rundstedt or was it Model who said, Antwerp? If we even get to the Meuse River, we should get down on our knees and thank God he so claimed to have said that in the aftermath of the war. It's always tricky to see whether he really did at the time. But I'm, I, I think... The German army by now was so outclassed, and was and had to operate in bad weather. It had to operate at night. You know, it, it, even Hitler himself said to said to Balk during some conversation before the Ardennes offensive, "Got to rebuild our air force. Until we rebuild our air force, we got to make like the Russians. We got to act like the Russians did in 1941. You know, we have to be very circumspect in our movements, and we have to learn to to uh, use bad weather and storms and blizzards. And and it's just kind of interesting to hear the hear the the." Supreme Commander of the Wehrmacht admitting that. So um, I, I don't. I just think it was absolutely inevitable, and I think it's whether it was mistaken or not. I think I had very, very small chance of of succeeding. But I can't imagine the Germans going down to ultimate defeat in this war without one having one last big shot in the chamber and taking it on somebody. But I, a path to victory, the way you also phrased it. Well, may, maybe there was a path to victory. Maybe you could do some damage against the Americans, inflict some casualties. But operational-level victory in that battle, strategic victory in the war, I don't think so, not by December 44. Well, I wish they had used it in the, on the Soviet side of the equation. May have, uh, we'd have been to Berlin. And, um, well, we might have. I mean, we might have. Where would you, know, where would you, where would you launch that attack? And, 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 and we're talking about December 1944. The, yeah. The, the Soviets, well, you'd be in Warsaw. You'd be fighting for Warsaw. Well, they did launch a major, <laughs> they did launch a major counterattack around Budapest. They did launch so. a counterattack around Budapest, there's no doubt, which is interesting. While the Soviets are actually driving on Berlin, the very heart of the capital, you're wasting your best divisions in a, in a strike. You know, about, about, half, uh, about half the size of Operation Vakdamra, about half the size of the Ardennes, using some of your finest divisions you have left in a strike against Budapest while your capital is being defended by Dutch and Norwegian and French SS formations. So to me, is and and you have two hundred thousand men sitting in Norway. Clearly, something had gone awry in German strategic and operational calculations by early, by late forty four, early forty five. 
That's right. Oh, well, that's interesting in and of itself. I'm going to switch again now again to uh, leadership and thinking about leadership. Yesterday's podcast with Jonathan Jordan, we spent a lot of time discussing the relationships between senior ally generals. I like to, because of your expertise, can you possibly shed some light on the relationships between German generals, particularly on the Western Front, and how those relationships impacted operations? Oh, that's an interesting question. After, okay, sure. After the war, every German general who was still compass mentis, you know, uh, wrote his memoirs. You, you know, this and this is we've all come of age reading these memoirs. Jim, you and I have probably had the same reading list in high school. You know, that that's my guess. Panzer leader by Guderian, uh, lost victories by Monstein, Panzer battles by Melanton. Um, later, Zenger und Etterlin's book, Neither Fear Nor Hope, his his book about the fighting in in the Mediterranean campaign and in Italy. Heinz Werner Schmidt with Rommel in the desert. You know, Rommel didn't live to write his memoirs, but his notes were kind of put together in book form as a, a Krieg ohne Haas, War Without Hate, and I think they 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 qualify as memoirs. They all told a remarkably consistent story of their relationship with Hitler. They had been his opponents. They had objected to one senseless operation, one senseless decision after the other, one badly planned operation after the other, one puzzling tactical maneuver after the other. They were blameless. If only Hitler had just stepped aside and let them run the war like the adults they were, Germany could have won the war or at least achieved something that looked like victory, some kind of stalemate piece. Uh, uh, Manstein I love to play chess and always use the metaphors of, of chess. Um, so it could have been maybe some kind of stalemated piece. You know, we know today that virtually every one of the claims they made is specious, that whatever they said they said after the war, they had they had acted very differently during the war. That that when, when Hitler said he was going to—they they aided and abetted Hitler's rearmament schemes, which disrupted, you know, European stability. They, they were in full support of the war. They wanted to see Poland smashed. They resulted over the victory in, in the West in 1940, and they all got field marshal batons. You know, Hitler was doling them up by the bucket load in, in the summer of 1940. Um didn't raise a peep when he said he was going to invade the Soviet Union, which they all claim later they did. He, 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 they could have. He briefed them multiple times on operational plans for the Soviet Union, and they were lo- they were loving that campaign. You know, m- months into it, when things seemed to be to be rolling forward. So, uh, oh, also, I will say that despite their claims, they they not only knew of the atrocities in the East and the Holocaust, but they actively aided and abetted it. Killing squads from the SS could not have done what they did without logistical support of the army trucks. Ammunition, sometimes men, you know, army uh, army personnel. So, so there's a there's a relationship that they described, and then there's a the relationship in reality. Uh, Hitler made any number of rotten decisions during the war. We, we we know that decisions that seemed puzzling or decisions that didn't work. But I think what fails to get enough attention is that often he was responding to some debate within the German officer corps about how to proceed, uh, because the you know the 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 number was up. their number was up. They were running a global war on, on inadequate resources, and very often they were faced with very difficult decisions. And some would say we have to turn left, and others would say we have to turn right, and others would say we have to stop. And then Hitler would have to get involved in what was a thorny operational question. More often than not. I would say he was, people always laugh at me when I say this, Jim, he was more often than not kind of, he took the conservative position. He would take the, well, let's not try that, or let's not do that, or let's 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 be prudent and split up our panzer divisions amongst three people who want them. He would rarely take the radical solution operationally. And that, that makes sense for someone with no high command experience, someone never been in any kind of staff school, didn't go to the Kriegs Academy, any of the others. 
I mean, I, I, I knew, I, I'm sure he knew at times that he was just kind of at sea. But what are people talking about right now and would often go for what seemed to be the most conservative or safest decision? So there's, I mean, uh, there's a, there are certain echoes of the Western leaders and there's certain echoes of Stalin, as, as a matter of fact. The, the Western leaders and Stalin wind up looking a lot better because they have so many more resources to draw from. That even if you make a false move, might not notice it as badly as if the Wehrmacht made a false move. Very good. I mean, very interesting points because, you know, as you, I'm listening to you, I'm like, I'm going to have a follow-up question here about what if Hitler had been more hands-off, but you pretty much answered well, I'll be happy. he wanted I mean, to be hands-off. There are some, sure, there are some specific places where, you know, look, um, late in the war when Hitler was telling individual divisions to hang tough and stand fast to the last man in defense of some village that the— you know, uh, what one German staff officer called the end of the war, you know, a, a series of retreats through villages with unpronounceable names. You know, that's from the German perspective. When Hitler is ordering all these divisions to stand fast to the last man, they're, 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 they're just they're, they're dying in droves. Yeah, Hitler should have kept his hands off. And Hitler is telling in 19, late 42, early 43 to deploy, you know, the five new Tiger tanks. And he's ordering them to be deployed in North Africa against the Americans in Tunisia. You got to say this is just—he's come off his rocker. He's supposed to be in charge of strategy, not not deployment of individual tanks. And he's pushing anti-tank guns around on the maps. You know, you know this. So certainly he should have been—he should have been more hands-off, um, and um, you know, let German officers run the war on more stable and, and professional principles. But they had acquiesced in all the big decisions, and I think they're arguing around the edges. Hitler was, you know, Hitler did, Stalin's character arc, character arc in the war was to be hands-on early in the war and then to let hands off as he gained confidence in his commanders. Hitler's is just the opposite. But that's what happens when one side is winning that's and very the other true. side is losing. So, And I guess the fact of the matter is, and I never really thought about it much, the reason he was telling him where to put the five Tiger tanks is somebody had raised that from a lower level all the way up to Jodl. And right. now he's now they're involving Hitler. He and would never even known about it. A certain amount of cowardice on, on a guy like Yodel's part or any of the other staff officers too. No, they can't take any action of any sort. If it gets back to Hitler, they're all going to be in trouble. It's the trouble of any absolute monarchy. You know that eventually everything winds up on the king's desk. Some kings can handle it better than others, and Hitler, you know, could not. Uh, you see the complete deterioration of his own physical and mental health. He was never a stable character to begin with. But you know, Jim, there's something else at work. You're directing Tiger tanks and individual anti-tank guns because you don't have enough of them. Uh, <laughs> There's only so many to go around. There's a moment in Hitler's table talk. You know, this big, thick volume of Hitler and these long, nocturnal rants that he'd go on for hours. Which someone mentioned, him. We, have, we should have more flamethrowers. And Hitler went off on a 25-minute talk. Oh, flamethrowers. Now, that's a terrifying weapon. Let me tell you, you don't want to be near a flamethrower. It's like he was waxing poetically back into his days on the Western Front. So, you know, Hitler's entire worldview was formed in World War I, and like a lot of his generation, he never really got out of it. That When he thought about warfare, he thought about the Western Front. And so German officers would, would, would you know, they said, we can't hold the front. And he'd say, certainly you can hold the front. You have this many divisions for that much line of trench. And they would try to tell him, but it no longer matters. We don't have a trench line. We have individual disconnected positions that Soviet armor can penetrate at will. That's just the way the game is played nowadays. But, you know, Hitler was never able to get out of that World War I trench mentality. And, and, and you know, that's the biggest reason that, yes, things would have gone smoother on some level had he not been so hands-on. But, again, the strategic de decisions to me were the determinant ones. 
All right, so let's leave those determining strategic decisions and go way lower down into the tactical level. Throughout the war, defeated, I, I would say almost demolished German armies, German corps, brigades, uh, smaller units, showed remarkable recuperative powers. I would like to your feelings on what you could attribute that to, and especially if there's any leadership lessons you could give for today's military leaders. Well, there is no doubt. Um, you, you could say that World War One ended in the in Europe because the German army went on strike. You know, it had just had enough fighting. It, m- much of it was still intact, and it was led home under the command, you know, under its commanders back into Germany, where it then simply dissolved. There never was a really climactic moment where the entire German army was encircled and destroyed, or or, or huge mass surrenders of hundreds of thousands of men. There's no Stalingrad moment in in World War One. Um, in, in in World War Two, the the army had been repeated. The German army had been pulverized. It's one of the biggest encirclement battles of all time. Yet on the tactical level, let's say the squad level, I think is probably the best place to talk about this. It hung remarkably tough till the very end. So it's 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 battlefield cohesion has been a matter of some interest to historians, and and numerous ones have written about. It. I think of Martin van Creveld, who's probably the one who has sung this song the most eloquently about German uh, battlefield. Cohesion. The primary unit of the German army really, really stayed tight during the war. And now you could attribute that to a number of factors. Um, one would be the 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 role of Nazi propaganda, Hitlerism, belief in Hitler, if you will. There really was a sense to the very end that somehow the Fuhrer would pull this out like he always had. These were young guys who'd come of age in the Hitler youth. You know, if if you were, uh, let's let's kind of do the rough and ready math. If you're 20 in 1945. Okay, so you were born in 1925, uh, and you were 18 when Hitler, or excuse me, you were eight when Hitler came to power, and you'd spent your life, you know, sort of imbued and 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 soaking in this sort of Hitlerist ethos that was put forth in the Hitler Youth and in all the propaganda. So, you know, that's part of it. And you know, that that's not just belief in Hitler, which well, you could at least accept that. That's also. Things like the crusade against Bolshevism, the need to struggle on against the Jews, the whole ugly package of propaganda that the Nazis were peddling, I think definitely played a role in keeping the army together. But German commanders commanders in the Wehrmacht were imbued with, with something else too, and that's the notion of looking after the welfare of your men as best you could, turning your primary unit into some kind of family. And, and that came from the experience in World War One, where there was seen as too much of a gap between soldiers and officers, between the enlisted and the officer ranks, and and that gap eventually grew until it, you know, it kind of destroyed the army in 1918. So you know, you read the, you read letters home. Stephen Fritz, great historian, has written on this in some detail. You read letters home from Wehrmacht soldiers, or you simply read their memoirs after the war, and 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 their, you know, the, the regard for their. For their squad leader, the regard for their company commander comes through again and again and again. You know, he was our father. It's like you know, talk. He's Papa, and he really cared for us children, no matter how bad the situation got. We knew we would pull through as long as we, you know, as long as we stayed loyal to him. So, I don't know. Some of the lessons are negative, and some of the lessons are you can sell anybody with with enough propaganda. You can you can make human beings do unimaginable things with propaganda. I don't think there's any doubt about that, particularly if they might be inclined to do those things in the first place. But secondly, you know, on the on the lower levels, German German company commanders, for example, you know, were in one hopeless battle after the other, and and you escape from one and you escape from another, and, and pretty soon you're imbued with an almost divine aura around you, your your abilities to take care of your men. And uh, I think that if there is one positive lesson, I almost hate to say it to come out of the Wehrmacht, it's in any military organization. 
loyalty doesn't just go up. I mean, obviously, you all got to worry about your boss. Everybody does in civilian life as well. Loyalty should go down, and you should really care for the people under your command. Uh, and the, the lower down the tactical ladder you go to you're really out there at the front end, the more important it becomes. Because you're, you're no longer back at base. You're in a lawless environment at the front end. And, and the bonds that hold people together have to be given very, very careful thought in that situation. You know, you did say something very interesting in there, which I hadn't thought of. If you had escaped Stalingrad or escaped Tunisia or escaped from North Africa, escaped the Filet's pocket, um, you'll by definition become a superhero, and that's how we're going to look at you forever. And we forget about the hundreds of thousands who were killed in there, and we, yeah, don't, so of we course. don't weigh them into the equation. Of course, that's why I say, you know, I, I hesitate to say there ain't positive lessons from the Wehrmacht at all. Trapped in a hopeless war, you know, if loyalty really is the men under your command, you're watching them all be killed. But if you're that, if you're that lucky remnant who just manages to slip through, you know, the Germans have this entire category of soldier after Operation Bagration in June of 1944 who somehow slipped through the Soviet news. And they're now 500 miles away from, you know, friendly lines. But they somehow managed to, they sleep during the day and they drink the dew off the leaves in the morning. And the Germans called them backfighters, like those who fought back. Not in fighting back like, like fisticuffs, but fought their way back. And, you know, by the time some of these guys, get, they got beards down to the middle of their chest and they look like they've got an epic a story to tell. And so there's any number of unlikely occurrences and they're kind of they become kind of legendary. They're sort of a symbol, hey, if this guy could do it, maybe if we're trapped here, I can do it too. In the Korsun pocket, man, when the Soviets have surrounded you and it's Ukraine, it's the middle of winter, half of you are saying, well, we're toast. But the other half you might be saying, I don't know, maybe just somehow, you know, Captain Brandt will get us through. Right. And then Captain Brandt becomes a legendary leader and uh Somebody we, writes a memoir all about him. Yeah. Right, and the German army gets a great reputation, and we forget that they left 100,000 men in the course of a pocket who weren't that good. Yes, there were 150,000 <laughs> men uh, surrounded. Maybe, well, but that might be a little bit high. Let's say 100,000 men surrounded, and 40,000 managed to escape without their weapons. So it's kind of a Dunkirk on land. But, but, but you know, really, who is there to write the book of the 50,000 who didn't? The guy who drowned in an icy river, you know, or... or trying to dodge Soviet machine gun fire getting out of the course and pocket. They really don't get a book written about them. Who, yeah, and those were the guys that were led by the weaker German <laughs> German officers. Yes, I mean, you know, they could be the guys from the same unit. They right. just you know, they just don't <laughs> enter the... Just a, that's a, a very good point when I try to make a lot. All right, so anyway, I'm going to switch it now to just something I've uh, read about recently, and I, I just want your opinion on it. Contrary to what we see in the Patton movie, where the German officers are continually tracking Patton's location as the main threat to anything they want to do, recent scholarship has said the Germans really didn't care much about Patton or where he was or what he was doing. One, I'd like to know if that's actually true from your perspective. And two, what are officers they did track? What did the German officers think of Allied leadership? Well, you said recent scholarship, and I qualify as recent scholarship, I think, on this point. I think I'd say 100%. Oh, they might have known Patton's name. I don't think the Germans gave gave much thought one way or the other to exactly who was commanding the Allied armies opposite them. The notion that, well, we Patton was the good person to put in f- control of the diversionary uh, uh, effort because the Germans assumed he would be leading the invasion. On what basis would they have assumed that? I don't. I mean, I've never read any documentation that said so. I've also never read any documentation from Hitler that he was trying to conquer Stalingrad because it was named after Stalin. You know, these things they get into the history books. That doesn't necessarily mean there's a documentary basis or any objective truth to them at all. So I don't really think the Germans gave much thought one way or the other to Allied commanders, this one or that one. But what they did think about Allied commanders as a group, 
as a corporate body is that they were overly cautious. They said to themselves, man, if I had that many planes and guns and tanks, I'd win the war in a week. And instead, the Allies are landing in Sicily, and now they're landing in Calabria, and now they're landing at Salerno, and they're a long way from Germany. They, they all said that. Every single one of them in their memoir says that. We could not believe how slow the Allied command was to do X, Y, and Z. You know, I mean, it's, it's pretty interesting to be commenting in such a negative way on the, on the team, if you will, that just whooped you, you know, just beat you so badly. Um, but that's what, that's what the Germans do in, in, in virtually all of their memoirs. So that notion that the Allies were a little bit too slow on the uptake, that they were just so cautious, that they didn't move until they had 100% security, <clears throat> all those things may be true, but it's, what, it's the way you should be commanding if you're the force with material superiority. Why risk everything? Why, if you're going to win the war in six months, why risk losing it in a couple of weeks or whatever you know, whatever it might be? Why, why do anything overly risky? And so, I mean, you could, it's easy. We should all push back against what the German officers are saying about the Allied command and their works. But I'm I just here to tell you about that thing about Patton. Uh, Germans did say all sorts of things in captivity that they thought might be flattering to their adversaries, German officers, once they've been captured. Many of them are looking for a friend, you know, they're looking for a new mission. And the new mission is to instruct the American and, and partially the British, but mainly the American armies on how to fight the Russians. It's the Cold War is now on. And so I don't know. Th those things might all play in. But I, I just I, I think the notion that somehow the Germans were afraid of Patton or Germans had some, over, some high operation respect for Patton's talents. On what basis would they have had that? Where did they see that? And certainly not in North Africa. After the collapse, near collapse of Kasserine Pass, Patton took over Second Corps, fought a neat, neat little battle toward Gafsa, then landed in Sicily, drove around Western Sicily to no good purpose, slapped some soldiers. <laughs> and so it's just, I don't know, it's pretty amazing to me. And what basis would the Germans have developed an overweening appreciation for Patton's operational talents? I don't see it. I don't buy it at all. I guess since we uh, developed such a his reputation here, we mirror image it on top of them, and I guess that happens quite often. Um, so I still remember those uh, books from BDM, the uh, with the big yellow covers, and uh, talking about General, you know, Ger well, we were talking to General Mellonfin and General Balk, and they were advising us on how to fight the Russians. And one of the ones that stuck out with me was uh, how to deal with refugees who would we expect them to be coming back by the hundreds of thousands or millions? How will we get our forces up the front to fight the Russians? And uh, General Balk looked up and he finally said, uh, after a couple of minutes fought, first your, first your machine gun, then your main gun, and then your treads. And I remember reading that. I said, there's a guy who was on the Russian front for way too long. Uh, yeah, the, well, once again, how to fight the Russians. Yeah, the Germans had a lot of experience of it. They didn't have any successful experience of it, not in the long term. And it's, it was, a, it was a curious phenomenon, but entirely predictable phenomenon that now the Germans, at least the West Germans, have become our friends in the Cold War, that we would look to them for experience. So um, operating under winter conditions, tactical breakthroughs, uh, airborne anti-partisan operations in the East. The Germans gave us tons of information, actually reports that they wrote that were widely distributed within the American military community. And, and you know, again, I cut my teeth as a historian on them. It's easy to poke holes in them right now, but I see them as a very important period piece, not of World War II necessarily, but of the early Cold War, when there was this great deal of uncertainty. I have no doubt that the Soviets were were pounding their East German officers for much the same sort of information. I'd be I'd be shocked if that you know if that wasn't true. So, 
probably is true. All right, so I have one final question. I'm going to ask it in a moment. I, and then my producer has been signaling me, Colonel Craig Price, that he would like to ask a question at the end. So I'll hand it over to him before we conclude out, if that's okay with you. Uh, you spent a lot of time studying the operational level of war. So as the United States military returns its focus to possible conflicts, conflicts with a near-peer competitor, probably Russia, maybe China, I don't know if we're supposed to name names, but those are the ones we're worried about at this time. Return to operational maneuver is important to us and will become more important, especially in our education system here for officers and our enlisted soldiers. Are there any overarching lessons from World War II that you can see that can help guide us as we do this? Well, the one that comes immediately to mind is techniques for coordination and combined arms warfare are not intuitive. They are not inborn. They have to be taught constantly. And that once you've lost them, it's going to take you a while to get them back. So if it is true today that it's you know no longer really possible for the U.S. Army to coordinate fires in the way it had, it had done so successfully in World War II and beyond, if, if it really is true that combined arms warfare is kind of a lost art after so many years of, of, of largely counterinsurgency um, operations, then somebody better do something about those problems really quickly. If it is possible that there could be war against a near-peer competitor of Soviet Soviets, excuse me, if the Russians would continue their drive into Ukraine proper, if the if the Chinese really do make a lunge for Taiwan, there are any sort of uh, all sorts of scenarios in which large-scale combined arms warfare, operational-level warfare, if you will, might once again become become possible and even necessary. And so, you know, I think I think large-scale open-field maneuvers are good. I think it's a bad way to save money by cutting them. I think national training centers are good. I think as realistic as your training can become. I know it's expensive to do that, and we're always looking for economies in peacetime, but that seems like a rough way to, to take economies. And when I, when I say all those things, I'm feeding back to your original question, is there any lessons from World War II? Because everybody had to learn that. The Germans were planning the war more actively, and so they had a head start. I think they did have more realistic maneuvers. By the time the United States Army did the Louisiana maneuvers, the Germans you know, already rampaged over a major portion of Europe. They've been doing that sort of thing for years. So um, I, I think that's one. I, I think a second uh, place to, to really make some gains for a relatively small amount of, of investment is just to make sure the military history community is strong. Um, within professional military education. Um, it's really the only, you know, are you going to learn lessons from history? That's that's not a good question. The question is, well, where else are you going to learn your lessons if you're not learning them from history? That's the question. And so I think those two areas, I, I think I think a lot of practice, I don't know if it makes perfect, but practice makes proficiency. And, and I think you also want to keep your mind sharp. And the best way to do that about leadership, military tactics, military doctrine is by reading its history. Well, certainly music to my ears and I'm sure many others at the same time. Yes, if you press a button, my answer is history. <laughs> Say I love almost that answer. 90% uh, of the So time. let me give this over to Colonel Craig Price and get the final question out to you. Well, sir, this morning when you were talking with the class, I heard uh, a couple of different things that made me think of, of something that uh, Dr. Lacey and I were working on last year. And uh, the idea that uh, Hitler, as a strategist, didn't see an end to war. He saw the constant war. And then couple that with the frustration that the Germans felt, the German high command felt after defeating France and not being able to get England or the United Kingdom to see reason and stop fighting. Uh, those frustrations, but yet they had just designed a brand new force and built a brand new force without the capability to project power beyond Europe. 
it was completely designed to win in Europe, and anything larger than a river posed a huge problem for him. What was, I mean, if you see yourself being in an endless war and you want to force an island nation to its knees, you have to have some sort of plausible means to threaten them. Why, what was the logic behind that? Was it just too hard? No, so those are, those are all good questions. Uh, I, I think you can see a strategy unfolding in stages in which you've conquered your, your uh, continental enemies, you've beaten or cowed your continental enemies, and you're able to access the resources of that entire Eurasian landmass, and then maybe you do build a bigger fleet and an air force of four-engine strategic bombers. That is, to project power against Great Britain, and then maybe eventually to project, project power against the United States. Certainly the documentation is pretty clear that at some future point, you know, Hitler expected to have a fleet of massive four or six-engine bombers. He expected to have a much larger navy. He was also a man in a hurry, and that begs the question of whether or not he started the war at the right time Rearmament had only been underway since 1935, so it was only about four years and some change since the open discussion of rearmament. And Germany had built a big battleship and a handful of others, and another battleship had been laid down, Tirpitz. And so there were some units being, being built to give Germany a, a larger battle fleet. But I think, I think we have to see that one unfolding in stages, where the Germany would first win this war and then that war. Hitler, if you think about it, did that pretty successfully in the early portions of the conflict localize the conflict to Eastern Europe, then localize the conflict to Scandinavia, then localize the conflict to Western Europe. Uh, for a time, he seemed to appear to have localized the conflict to uh, in the East, that is, against the Soviet Union, uh, before American Lend-Lease really got underway, for example, and then the invasion of the West helped stabilize that situation. But if you put all those things together, I, I, I think you can say that that's Hitler's long-term plan. That these wars go on to—they don't end in 1945. They go on into the 19. 50s with you know thermonuclear strikes against the American heartland. Who knows what it would have been uh, by that time? But you know, let, so that's looking ahead. Let me look back for a moment and say, I think the German force structure is almost entirely predictable, given the history of Prussia, Germany. It's a it's a landlocked, well, not completely landlocked. It has a narrow coastline in the north, but is essentially a Central European power. The the Macht, die Macht in der Mitte. So um, the power in the center of of Europe. It's got enemies surrounding it. You know, back in the 18th century, they were France and Austria, Russia, and the mighty Swedes to the north. You know, there's a, there a shifting constellation of where your enemies are. Uh, but that basic situation, one basic situation hadn't changed, and that's where Germany is in Europe. And so you better have that army strong first, or the strongest navy in the world isn't going to avail you much if you get beaten on, on land. Uh, and also, I think, so it determined that the Germans would build their navy last. Build the Army first, Navy last, and also determine what kind of Air Force they would build, which is not a strike necessarily against anybody's heartland, but an Air Force that was tactically adept at cooperating with the land force and making it the sharpest, uh, you know, giving it the sharpest edge possible. And once again, well, you know, it didn't work in the long term, but it did work for the conflict Hitler unleashed in 1939. I, you know, just for the record, I... Uh, nobody's defending Hitler here or defending Hitler's decision to launch the war. I'd say Germany, you know, seen objectively, Germany probably had a 15% chance, 10% chance of winning that war. It went up after the victory in Poland and after the victory in France. It went up. Then it came back down after the chance of Germany winning the war. But I think that, that, but that, that Hitler's future plans and Germany's military cultural past, I think, both explain the kind of force structure the Germans went to war with in '39. Yeah, it was, I was just struck by your comments on Crete and the high casualty rate of the airborne invasion of Crete. 
And we used airborne forces, and they did have a higher casualty rate uh, than the amphibious forces, but we always, when we were successful with them, we used them in conjunction with other assaults, with amphibious assaults. And their lack of an ability to do that, they were victorious in Crete, but it, at yeah. a pretty high cost. Had a high cost and also, at the, also forcing the decision in Hitler's mind never to do it again. The Allies looked at that operation and said, well, it was bloody, but it did succeed in, in, in securing an island in enemy-held waters. And the airborne forces would only expand. You know, that boy, that's another podcast, Air, Allied Airborne Operations in World War II. Always bloody and chaotic and dropping in the sea and all kinds of problems. And the closest the Allies, I would say, came to an all-airborne, strictly speaking not true, but it's close enough, would be Arnhem. You know, Operation Market Garden, and that's a very tough fight. Airborne, those airborne divisions in the south hold, still holding bri bridge, bridges and bridgeheads and getting beaten back and having to retake them, and the, the, the drive getting the Commonwealth Drive north getting stalled on the main highway. And yeah, that's another story. There's a the very bloody operations, but it's just funny that Crete led to two diametrically opposed conclusions from the Allies and the Axis. And probably, as you said earlier, it has to do with one had resources and the other was lacking. Good point. So uh, It's a good point because I said it. So, yes, it must be a good point. <laughs> I often say that myself when I'm arguing with anyone. Dr. Satino said this, and that ends the entire argument. <laughs> well, Dr. Satino, thank you for being on our show today. I know our students really enjoyed their time with you, and we look forward to having you back at McWarren in the near future. I'm your host, Jim Lacey. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded, innovative podcast of the Marine Corps War College. This concludes the EGA podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the United States Marine Corps or the Department of Defense. You can follow the Marine Corps War College on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at College. And as always, our podcast music is Stuck in Traffic by Romero. Have a great day.